0: Hi, welcome back to Clarksville's Conversations. We're um, interviewing the candidates for political office in Clarksville and Montgomery County. And um, one of the top races on the ballot this uh, November is going to be the U.S. Congress. Um, With us today is uh, Kieran Sripata. He is the Democratic nominee for Congress um, running against uh, incumbent Republican Mark Green. Um, And uh, Sripata is a small business owner from Williamson County. So thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me
0: on. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll um, uh, get started right away with the uh, the questions. So first let's talk a little bit about healthcare. Um, Where do you stand on uh, the Affordable Care Act? Um, Is there something that you think, do you fully support it or do you think there should be something done to improve or replace it?
1: No, I I think, we should improve it and, and, and I generally have this philosophy with a lot of policies that are in place. I don't think we should ever put anything in place where we think it's the the final, it's the perfect thing uh, that's there. I think we should always be looking to better ourselves and and you know it, sometimes it's just in terms of what gets passed and then we have to keep working or sometimes it's in terms of time right. What we did eight years ago may need to be improved upon uh, every now and then. So I think the ACA um, you know had a noble goal of covering more people. It did put roughly 20 million people back on the insurance rolls in the private marketplace uh, for those uh, insurers. Um, but I also think that we need to do better. Um, it had a lot of burdens on small businesses. Uh, it had a lot of burdens with premiums going up. Um, and talking about that for a second, you know, premiums went up primarily because there was a lot of federal aid that was going to states and that was supposed to help stabilize those premiums. Well, Tennessee and a number of other states did not take some of that funding. Um, and similarly they didn't expand the medicaid program that was also part of the aca uh, with the federal funds and so that also affects premiums it makes them go up now i'm not here as a as someone running for office to sit here and say you know eight years ago we should have done this i can't believe that this governor did this i'm here to say this is where we are here's how we move forward so we do need to improve on it we need to make sure that as we expand out i'm the agenda that i put advocate for is that we expand the Medicare coverage uh, for a number of Americans out there. Um, it balances the risk pools. I advocate for expanding it out on the lower end, under 30, for instance, and above 55 to start with. Uh, it will balance that out and make it a little more fiscally uh, solvent. Uh, and also it will cover a lot of people that need coverage. Um, the other thing we, we push for is that the ACA, I don't think predicted the closure of rural hospitals in Tennessee. We have one of the highest rates of closures uh, in the country. Um, expanding out federal funding for healthcare means expanding federal funding for some of those rural hospitals. And you know, people say, well, those hospitals didn't make money. And I always remind them, some of those community hospitals, they didn't need to make money. They need to be self-sustaining. Um, they, they need to be a service to the community because we've got counties in this district that are 60 miles away from the nearest uh, hospital. You also don't need a level one trauma center, for instance, in every single county. Um, but you do need a clinic, one that's a right size for that county. You don't need three plastic surgeons, for instance, in a rural county maybe, uh, but you might need a cardiologist, pulmonologist, and two nurses and whatever the community needs. So when I talk about expanding healthcare and improving on the ACA, I mean, let's go to the next step. You know, Let's stop looking at it like the ACA is going to be the thing that we have to work in details in. We can replace, if we want to, a large portion of it with something better. Uh, but the key thing there is, what is that something better? Have a plan. For four years now, uh, almost four years, we've heard repeal and replace, even longer actually with, with Republicans prior, prior to that. Uh, but there's never been the replacement. What's the replacement? You can't just sit here and say, I'm gonna take away healthcare from millions of Americans without a better alternative. Uh, I'm advocating for a better alternative in what I just described. And so that's, that's where I stand at least on improving the ACA.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you um foresee a time when you could support um something beyond the ACA such as single payer or Medicare for all
1: um potentially um you know I won't say I have to see the bill um one of the questions I always have for the current Medicare for all bills are how are you going to what is the legal argument behind banning private insurance um and I mentioned this uh primarily because When I was in government, uh, so in my bio, you said I was a small business owner and I want to basically make something very clear to people. I was a small business owner um, and I also was a civil servant in the federal government in the government accountability office. And while we were there, we did a number of reports and a lot of work on um, basically, how is it that you can get to uh, a a system where you have as many people covered as possible and you have a competitive insurance market. And in all of that, one of the things they looked at was the ACA, and the ACA was in its sixth or seventh year, and it was still being mired by legal battles. Um, that is something I want to avoid. So if someone can give me a legal argument, potentially I can start understanding it. Um, but let's be very clear, uh, the, the route I think we should take, even if you want to get there, is to still provide an alternative, um, a Medicare alternative, uh, that forces private insurers to compete. We did that in the federal government. The federal government provides private insurance to its employees. Uh, They asked Medicare to compete with those policies and that drove the cost down dramatically. It's one of the most comprehensive and cheapest insurance plans on the market. Um, And that is because of competition. We don't have that competition elsewhere. So, you know, when you say single payer, I, I think yes, possibly. I need to see the bill. I need to see how we're getting there. For right now, what I'm advocating for is I think possibly gonna get, get us there, but more importantly, is going to cover more Americans for cheaper with a better comprehensive
0: coverage. All right. Um, so moving on to, uh, this is an issue that's, um, Congress has been uh, debating this for many years, and that's uh, immigration. Um, the uh, you know, presidents have gone back and forth saying they needed to act because Congress hadn't, and um, not really much has happened. What do you see happening with immigration reform? What do you think should be done? Um,
1: so I think there are three off top of my head, three major areas we should be looking at. So, um, to start with, there's, there's whatever, however you want to classify it. Um, but what is happening on our Southern border? Um, and I say, however you want to classify it, because if I look at news reports and if I look at 24 hour news, uh, I'm going to get some extreme version of what actually, what it actually is. You don't have to go there. We do have people on Southern border who are trying to enter this country uh, legally. We have try- people who are trying to enter this country because of asylum claims, uh, people who are escaping persecution, et cetera. Um, we have a number of people there and we don't have enough judges to adjudicate those claims. Um, one of the major issues that that I worked on was uh, when in government was on citizenship and immigration services in how to make visa programs better. Um, and what we looked at was also What do you need in terms of resources? And those judges are a crucial part to how we can go about and actually evaluate the backlog of claims we have at the Southern border. Um, By and large, we do not have data that supports most of the extreme versions that you see on the media. We do not have, for instance, uh, entire swaths of people who are trying to enter this country and just take over. Um, This is not the case. What we have is a humanitarian crisis. We've got people who are trying to escape persecution, gang violence, uh, murder, uh, general uh, insecurity, uh, potentially religious persecution in some cases. Um, And what we need to do is remember that that was the very core and basis of our initial uh, immigration system, the idea of people coming here to have a better life. Um, And that leads me sort of to a second part that I was looking at, which is how do people come? My parents came here uh, in 1968 and 79, dad and mom. And they came here seeking a better life. That was legitimately it. They wanted the American dream. And my mother actually was coming outside after uh, India was coming out of sort of a very weird, uh, it was called a state of emergency. Essentially it was closer to a little bit of martial law mixed in with some extreme form of centralized uh, uh, control. But the point was coming here, they knew it was gonna be tough. They didn't have any idea of what their lives were going to be like. They knew uh, when they had kids, they, me and my sister, they wanted us to be here. Nobody takes the, makes that decision to move your entire family on a very, very harrowing journey with the complete uncertainty of what your life will be like without having that desperation of needing to get away from some sort of terrible situation. And that's what I think we forget in a lot of these cases. We have amazing things in government, by the way, and this is the third part I look at, uh, that need to be improved. We do not have data sharing, for instance, between Customs and Border Patrol and Citizenship and Immigration Services. We barely have data sharing on a lot of our law enforcement agencies, uh, federal law enforcement agencies uh, across the board domestically. What this means is that one hand isn't talking to the other, and we have no way to have an efficient Uh, or effective government response without doing that. When I was at uh, USCIS doing some work, I mean, I remember that you had one person adjudicating 10 files, and each of these files was about this high. It's about a foot is what I'm trying to to gesture. Um, You have to do the person as an individual. You have to do the job as an individual of analyzing that data, comparing it to the other files, remembering the details and where they are. And I just gave you 10. There were plenty more. Um, that is not the way we should be doing things. The GAO recommended for years to digitize that data, to use analytics platforms to help in this uh, process. And that goes for all sorts of immigration agencies and other agencies. Um, so we have that. Another thing that we do that we don't necessarily put as much light on that we should is uh, there's a specific e- uh, visa program called the EB-5 program, but there's a number of visas like that. Uh, and the effect is that we have said, if you wanna invest, half a million dollars in the United States. We will give you a visa and I'll put you on a path to a green card. Um, so we're basically selling our visas, um, but more importantly, fine. You wanna sort of initiate investment into the country. I can, I can understand that logic. Most of those visas, over 90% have gone to uh, Chinese companies. And when we did the work, we found that those Chinese companies weren't necessarily sending people over to do business. They were sending money over to just get people in the country. Um, and they had the money to do so. It was a huge abuse of the program, but they had no way to figure that out. Again, going back to the fact that they didn't have digitized files and they didn't talk to other agencies. Um, so this is one of those areas where government can be better and we can make it more efficient and effective. Uh, and that's that applies a lot to the way we do immigration visas and and look at who's in the country and, and how we, we look at them. Uh, and I, I'm sure the last point that you probably have in your mind or maybe viewers do is you have, somewhere estimates range somewhere between 11 and 13 million people in this country um, currently that are undocumented, uh, undocumented Americans. And um, we need to realize a couple things. One, they play crucial parts of our uh, of, of our economy. They have jobs, they contribute. Uh, for anyone that says they do not contribute taxes, I would like to remind people that in Tennessee, no, there's no state or income uh, 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 state income tax, but there is a sales tax. And every time they buy something that is coming into the state coffers um, and local coffers for that matter. So they are a huge part of our economy. They do a lot of the work that we need. um, And you cannot expect if you get all of them out of the country that you're going to have no impact on our economy or our way of life. Um, On top of which you'd need a federal law enforcement like, three times the size of what it is with one specific mission for everyone to actually accomplish that. It's just an inefficient process. It doesn't work. Uh, Ronald Reagan recognized this, by the way, because this is typically a Republican argument, but he recognized this and saw the other way, which is giving them a pathway to stay in the country legally, contribute to the economy, contribute to our uh, federal and state tax systems, if there is one uh, in that state, uh, and continue providing services and goods and being part of our, our, our overall communities. These are neighbors, they're not random people out there that you may never see. They're neighbors, they go to school with my kids or your kids, you know, they, they're, they're part of our lives. They're not just, you know, data points. They should be looked at as what they are, which is people um, in, in, our, in our country that, that, are, that are valued.
0: All right, and um, how about, uh, of course, this issue seems to evolve um, every 12 hours uh, lately, uh, and that's uh, coronavirus. Um, the coronavirus impact assistance has, um, at least uh, an hour ago, um, has been um, held up uh, between all the negotiations between Congress and the President and the administration. Um, where do you stand on the uh, current version of the relief package? Uh, what do you think should be done?
1: Yeah, so um, I think the corona, the corona, the current version of the coronavirus relief package um, is is important. We need it. Um, we do. We have no. We have sort of an end in sight um, if we think about when a vaccine might be developed and when we might be able to deploy it next year potentially but we have no temporary end in sight um and we thought this in march and we didn't do anything and and i can play the blame game as good as anyone else and 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 but i won't uh, because where we go from here is that businesses are still suffering people are still out of work Uh, Healthcare bills are piling up, Um, you know, COVID bill averages uh, around $70,000 in some cases for the treatments, you know, and, and it can be treated as a pre-existing condition, which in and of itself is going to be problematic uh, for anyone who gets it. Um, And, and you don't have any way to, to assure people that without some safety measures, their kids might be able to go to school or they might be able to learn. Um, You know, this is the seventh district, not just Montgomery County or Williamson County, half of this district does not have reliable broadband. So their kids are, are not at the same position that some of our kids might be in these two counties where they have that option of teleeducation. education um, Broadband is a huge push for me because of that. Uh, the small businesses lose out on some opportunities because of that, obviously telemedicine suffers as well. Um, so overall, we need this package to go forward because we need to continue moving on to save uh, a lot of the people in this country who are getting lost in those cracks because we don't have a coherent plan or an end in sight here. Um, now from a health perspective, a public health perspective, you know, I take my cue from the CDC, I take my cue from the National Institute of Health, from scientists and data, and I take my cue because uh, from them because my wife is an ICU physician. This is not something that we don't see on a daily basis and I hear about on a daily basis. She and her colleagues are out there treating COVID patients on a daily basis, her partner herself, um, and it's, it's the most unpredictable virus, uh, this is her words, the most unpredictable virus she's ever dealt with, uh, as well as uh, one that has no way of, of, of a consistent treatment. Um, they have guidelines and protocols and they know generally what to do, but they also know that if they're not careful for a certain period of time, you know, a patient can go quickly from good to, to bad uh, or vice versa. Um, it's just because we're still in the overall scientific world, in the beginning stages of learning about this virus. So because of that, we need to be as careful as we can. And that's why, for instance, masks have been uh, uh, pushed as as one of the main ways we as ordinary citizens can fight this and and make sure that it's not spread. Uh, But in case it is, that's why we have these other things in place. We have it in place to help support small businesses get through a time where they're gonna have fewer people circulating through their shops or kids going to school. Schools need that funding to help ma- make them safer if you're gonna have in-person. Uh, you might need to invest in certain things like broadband and things like that, uh, Wi-Fi tablets if you need to, uh, for some school districts that need to get things out there. Um, and I wanna make one remark on, on economic stimulus as a whole. One of the biggest things that I'm advocating for on the website in person something called proactive government it is essentially a way to be responsible in your governance it's a way to be uh it's a way to invest in your society and in people in order to reap those returns now there are many returns that can't be quantified obviously you know you can't quantify happiness uh or uh, well for instance you can't quantify satisfaction someone has uh for 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 majority of things but what you can quantify are things like we know that the rate of return for infrastructure is over 1.5 to 1. We know that, you know, broadband across the board would bring untold uh, returns to us because of what opportunities are created. We know that investing in our healthcare uh, and healthcare infrastructure at the conservative end will lower costs by about $40 billion a year. And at the more liberal end, will, will lower it by over $100 billion a year. Uh, we know that there are tax sheets out there that do not pay over $350 billion in taxes every year. I'm not talking about people who use loopholes. I'm talking about people who actually owe us money that we can't collect because we don't have enough people to go after them and do that. We don't invest in that anymore. And those are huge things that we're losing out on um, that, that could help us have responsible, fiscally responsible and ethically responsible policies so that when you have to take out this credit card during a pandemic, you're a little more comfortable doing so. Um, And that's where I say for right now, where we are, we have to do this, but as soon as we come out of this, we've gotta be better about how we invest in policy.
0: What do you see, um, do you see that as, what would you say to the argument, well, that's just going to raise our taxes if we have this sort of investment, um, you know, high cost investment in say infrastructure, we've gotta use taxpayer money to fund that. So that could create an additional burden on taxpayers. Um, How do you respond to that argument?
1: I would say it might create an additional burden on taxpayers who are making more than $400,000 a year, which I, and I would argue most of the district do not fall under uh, just based on what the average income is. Um, yes. There are some people who are going to be paying more in marginal tax rates. Uh, those are people, as I said, about 400 K there are people who are going to be paying a little higher in capital gains rates. Um, and typically, you know, there's that statistic that says 50% of Americans are invested in the stock market. Only like 10 to 20% of Americans own 80% of that stock market. So there's a small portion of people that are gonna have higher taxes in those two areas at least, okay? Um, I, would, I would argue that by the way that these investments, some of which do have to come from the way we do certain things. So um, when we talk about investing, yes, you're gonna have to put the money up front. You might run a deficit. You probably will not run a trillion dollar deficit as we have been for the last two years though. And the reason for that is because as you go and invest in smarter policies, like regaining some of the tax money that you're talking about, like closing corporate loopholes for their taxes, not individual taxes, but corporate ones, um, you have that money there in place to start those investments. And then you can start getting those returns and then you can invest more. Um, as a small business owner or former small business owner, as anyone who's ever worked in you know, banking or any, anywhere else, um, when you work with those numbers day to day, you see, yes, you can do this. Um, you're gonna have to basically bite the bullet initially, um, but then you have other streams of revenue coming in. And then the return on the back end is really what pays for the whole thing and allows you to get back to a, to a point where your people are a little more equitable and also paying not just their fair share, but also as minimal as possible to make sure all the services are going on. Uh, I often liken it to when you get that small business loan and then you start and you've got that hump of paying the debt, but once you get going, suddenly it goes down, the debt goes away and everyone else is paying a little less. So um, yes, there are some tax increases in there. Um, Yes, there's a lot of investment in people. You know what else there is? There's the ability to connect wherever you are. There's the ability to not fear your next health insurance bill. There's the ability to know that you are paying your taxes, as is the corporation paying their taxes, as is the individual who's making billions um, and has tax shelters elsewhere because we're able to find that. Um, Those are the kinds of things that come back to society that is investing in itself and progressing, literally the word progressing, moving forward. Um, We're moving backwards in a lot of cases. There's a lot of people who don't have access to basic things. Public education funding, for instance. A child, in my opinion, should not be penalized based on where they live uh, by going to a school that can't offer everything that that child should have to create the opportunity afterwards. We know that schooling, public schooling uh, that are fully funded have amazing returns. I'm not talking about financial returns. I'm talking about fewer people in prison, fewer people on, on drugs uh, or with alcohol dependencies, um, more people who find more, greater happiness in the work that they do. Uh, more opportunities i mean these are all things that come out of those investments so yes there's initial investments but there's huge returns and i'll just say this a lot of politicians i think shy away from this kind of stuff because they're worried about what happens in two years they're worried about how am i going to justify an investment if it's going to take four years to return how am i going to justify an investment when i go back to the district And I say that this is part of the problem. It's quarterly thinking at its finest. It's basically saying, how do I prepare for the next quarterly report in business? Um, Instead, we should be thinking about the long-term future of this country. My advisors in graduate school were both Republicans, uh, you know, in the classic sense. And they always talked about long-term strategy because that was important to them. And and that's what we've lost in this country is, yes, we wanna wake up next year in a better country, but don't we also wanna make sure that in 10 years, we're a phenomenally better country? Um, don't we wanna make sure we strive towards something that is more aspirational than we can imagine now? And I think to get there, we have to do
0: these kind of things. All right. Um, so we've talked about um, those three issues. What um, other than that would you like to talk about? What else should uh, voters keep in mind as they get ready to cast ballots And uh, well, I guess uh, next week, uh, <laughs> end in November?
1: Yeah, um, I'll say this, look, I am, uh, I, I'm never been in politics before. This is my first race. Um, I didn't rise up, I'm not a career politician. I didn't think this was gonna be the track I was gonna take. I entered this race because I felt like I and many others weren't being represented. Um, that being said, I also wanna bring anything that I have with me to this office. And it's not just the policy knowledge or, or trying to get through these things. It's the ability to work together It's the ability to know that when I was at GAO, it was nonpartisan, which meant we worked with Republicans and Democrats and independents uh, to make sure that we got bills passed that were moving us forward. Um, It's not the sexiest thing in the world. It's not the Hollywood version of Washington, but it's what works and keeps us moving. Um, And that's the kind of representative I wanna be. But I also took an important lesson from GAO, which is the importance of accountability and transparency. Um, Right now, and. Anyone that knows my campaign knows that I said in the beginning we were going to be very civil. I was going to attack my opponent on policies and public statements on those policies and the votes that he's cast, uh, but that I would not be personal about it. Um, I want to bring that back on a higher level to government because there are 435 members of Congress, 35 of which are constantly trying to get on Fox or any other channel they can, and the other 400 are there putting their heads down, trying to figure out how do we keep going. They're not the names you know but they're the names that get those bills passed in the end. That's the kind of legislator I want to be. And then I want to be able to come back here every time I'm back in the district for a recess and say things like we're having a town hall uh, in Clarksville, in uh, anywhere else uh, that you could think in the district. And every time we're back, we should be hitting a different location. Come express your sentiments, express what your points of view are. My role is to justify what I did after explaining uh, and and telling everyone what's been done, but justify it the language in the bill, the vote, uh, the reason it, it helped the district. And in some cases, as it helps maybe the majority of the district, there might be a small hurt too. Explain that. Justify your, uh, your, your ability to be a good representative. That is what transparency is all about. Uh, I worked on data transparency bills and, and government transparency when I was in the GAO. It's one I wanna hold uh, as part uh, an important part of my office. Uh, and something I think people deserve. Um, and finally, it also gives us a, an opportunity to interact, be accessible, make sure people are giving me new insights. I don't know everything, uh, and I don't think anyone knows everything. Uh, I should be able to learn, uh, keep going forward and saying, okay, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that before. Or yes, we're, we, we are trying to do that, and uh, you know, it's gonna take six months, but we're gonna do it in the next six months. Um, these are the things that I think someone who's a representative should be able to do. Just. For people watching, just remember your representative is not meant to be above you, is not meant to be aloof or someone you never see. They're meant to be you. I am part of this community. I've got, you know, my wife and I, we have and had and still have some student debt. We've got medical bills or we had medical bills and, you know, we've dealt with the insurance issues and we've dealt with, you know, being able to live on certain types of incomes and public housing and in previous times in our life and some of those things now. that's why I'm, I'm running. It's basically to get across to people that this is what your representative is. It's someone who's like you, but who may have a different vision of what their role is. Every role is important. I just think this is where I can make the biggest impact. Uh, so I would ask you to just remember that uh, when you're casting your ballot, and uh, I'd be really honored if I can earn that vote.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Kieran. This has um, been great. And, um, and thank you especially for, you know, putting your heart and soul into this campaign to run for public office. It's um, not an easy thing to do. And um, it's, uh, it's important for our community uh, across the state to have um, people willing to step in and um, share their ideas and um, further hat in the ring for something like this. And we appreciate your leadership.
1: Thanks. I appreciate
0: that. Subscribe to Clarksville's Conversation wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single conversation.